Ephesians 4, and verse number 16 says, From whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, making increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that ye henceforth walk not as other Gentiles walk, in the vanity of their mind, having the understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling, having given themselves over unto lasciviousness to work all uncleanness with greediness, but ye have not so learned Christ. If so be, ye have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that ye put off concerning the former conversation the old man, which is corrupt according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that ye put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. If I could pause for a moment and just comment, I think it's clear to see that relationships within the church, that getting along working together and serving together, a healthy church, it requires, first of all, that we have been renewed in our mind, that we've been regenerated, we've been born again. We all know that we all have that old sin nature living within us. We can all be stinkers at times, amen? But without the Holy Spirit of God, one thing is for certain, when we act ugly and when we're selfish and full of pride, if the Holy Ghost of God is inside of us, then somehow, some way, and sometime, the Holy Spirit's going to convict us. We're going to know that we have grieved the Holy Spirit of God. And sometimes the more defensive that we are, and the more adamant that we are that we are right is just, we're just proving that down deep in our heart, we know that we don't have the blessings of God in the way that we're behaving. So having said all that, verse 25 says, Wherefore, putting away lying, speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the Son of God, or let not the Son go down upon your wrath. Keep a short list. If you get upset, if you get angry, then get it, get over it and deal with it and confront it if it needs to be confronted or apologize if you owe an apology. Don't let it drag on because time usually doesn't uh, do anger any favors. Verse 27, neither give place to the devil. Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor working with his hands the thing which is good that he may have to give to him that needeth. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. And grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby ye are sealed unto the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice, and be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. Before we pray, I'd like to remind us all that the things that I just read is the Word of God, not the opinion of man. 
There's not a formula. This is not man's formula for a healthy, harmonious church that we all get along and serve together. This is God's formula. And without this formula, we can practice all kinds of techniques and tactics and manipulation tools and management tools, but this is the only way that a body, a church, can function together in a way that is not only effective with the world, but more importantly, honoring and glorifying of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for the Word of God. And Lord, you have all the answers to all of our problems. And Lord, we struggle at times. And we are flesh, and Lord, you know all about it. We are selfish, and we are full of pride, and we are easily deceived. And Lord, the world around us, we, we just haven't seen a whole lot of godly examples of how a Christian ought to behave and think and feel. And Lord, we need you here today. And I, I thank you, Lord, that as I've said the last few weeks, that this is not corrective per se, but rather this is instructive. I thank you, Lord, for the peace and the harmony and the fellowship that we enjoy here at Temple Baptist Church. But Lord, I'm certain that Lord, in a congregation this size, that we all have our issues and problems that we need your help with. And I pray, Father, that this message here today would be effective and that it would bring you the glory and honor that you deserve. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I've already said, there are many, many books in every Christian bookstore about relationships, too many Not enough on Bible doctrine, not enough on the redemptive work of Jesus Christ and the blood atonement. There's not near enough on the things that matter the most and way too many on relationships. But I will say this, when it comes to relationships, this is the best book that any of us can read. Because not only does this book give us instruction on what to do and what not to do, but it also fills us with the Spirit of God and with the power to actually go out and do something about what we know is the right thing to do. I've had many times where I know, I've had times where I've taught you what to do from the Bible, and then I've turned around and made the same mistake that I told you not to do. I've had that happen on the same day. God bless and God help my wife. But it's just the reality. Just because you find an inconsistency in someone that teaches the truth, it doesn't mean that it is not so. Because the Bible right here says that we are all flesh, and so we need to remember that. The only way to have a problem-free church is to get rid of all the people. And we know that the church is not a building or an organization. It is the people. I have felt this way. I mean, when I was an assistant pastor, I thought, man, I would love this job if it wasn't for the people. And you just think, what are you there for then if it's not for the people? And it's easy to lose sight of that. Someone said, I'm looking for the perfect church. Hey, if you find it, don't join it because you'll mess it up. And I'm not saying that as to excuse our faults and failures. That's not the motive behind that. I just know that it's the reality of it. And I remind you that, hey, people out there in the world, whether it be the Kiwanis Club or the Moose Lodge or whatever club or organization or whatever corporation that's out there, they have the same problems and worse 
Because anytime you get people working together, there's going to be some challenges and there's going to be some problems and it just goes with the territory. We are all, uh, we are not only all different from one another, but we are all sinners and we all have a tendency to become full of ourself and full of pride. By way of review in this series of messages, the first thing that we've looked at is identifying the body, that is the church. Secondly, the relationship of the pastor to the people. And then thirdly, last week, we talked about the relationship of the people to the pastor. And here today, number four, I want to talk to you about the relationship between the people and the people. And that includes the pastor and staff. I'm just talking about the people. We all have various responsibilities, but let me tell you something. In the book of heaven, where our name is written down, the name written down in the book of heaven for me does not say Pastor Randy Mitchell. It just says Randy Mitchell. All right? I got saved the same way as you did, and so our positions and our responsibilities do not make us any more elevated. This is not a caste system. As the preacher once said, the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And so while the pastor and the deacon and all that may have different responsibilities, we are still part of the church, the body of Christ. And it's important that we all understand that. Now, as far as the Bible and our relationship with one another, there are many, and I, I, there's no way that I could give you all of the Bible principles. We could preach all year. We could preach, uh, we could preach a whole decade and not exhaust all of the Bible truth that is relevant to our relationship with one another within the local church. But the first thing that I think needs to be brought to our attention and we need to be reminded of or instructed of is the concept of love. Love is certainly a foundational principle in all of our dealings with one another. Now it is interesting, John 13 verse 34, where Jesus tells his disciples, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another as I have loved you, that ye also love one another. You study the life of Jesus Christ, you find that he never played politician. You find that he was never trying to win a popularity contest. He was trying to be a faithful friend and example and mentor to his disciples. There were times when he did not spare their feelings, but that doesn't mean that Jesus was not kind and gentle. He always spoke the truth in love. He loved his disciples to the end. The Bible says, or he said in the Bible, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. He died there. He went to the cross for his disciples. And because of that, he gives us a commandment that we're supposed to love one another. Now, this is worth repeating something I've said a hundred times from this pulpit, and that is this. Love is not a feeling. It is a decision and a commitment. It is an action. When we view love as an action, then the feelings will follow. But if we think that love is a feeling, then we don't know what love is. 
Well, I fell in love with someone. I felt something toward them. And if you fell in love with them today, you can fall out of love with them tomorrow. When we view love as a feeling, then we are in trouble when it comes to obeying the Word of God. It's just, it's just such a, and I'm not trying to rub salt in anyone's wound here today, but when we make our marriage vows, we say for better, for worse. We don't say, I'll stay with you as long as I feel like I love you. And if I stop feeling, you know, sometimes, and, and I wouldn't approve of this, but sometimes a little honesty in weddings would be a blessing. Amen. You know, if they just get up there and say, you know, let's just see if this works. You have my promise that I'll give it a, give it a go. It's a shame. Love is a commitment. It's a decision. It is an action. It is not a feeling. We are told to love one another. We are not commanded that we have to like one another. I have people that I love dearly that aren't my kind of people. Right? That's why the the body of Christ is cross-cultural. The preacher Friday night, I think it was Friday night, uh, we were there and he was talking about people who lived north or south of the Mason-Dixon line. And you know, he said, everybody that, that, that was born north of the Mason-Dixon line, raise your hand. And I, and I kind of started to raise my hand, and I thought, no, wait a minute. I'm not, I was born in Idaho. That's out west. All right? Idaho was not a state during the Civil War, so I am not a Yankee. You cannot call me a Yankee. You can call me a taterhead. You can say I talk funny, you can say I'm weird, you can say all of those and you'll be right, but I'm not a Yankee and that's no knock on those of you that are Yankees. Which, by the way, we are in the South, but <laughs> they won. <laughs> you see what I'm trying to do here? I'm trying to get everybody at odds with one another emotionally so that we can recognize that our love toward one another is not a cultural or a personality or it is not a social status. We are all, listen, it doesn't matter if you are from this country or another country or what language. If you are a born-again Christian, we are part of the family of God and it doesn't matter. Hey, listen, men and women are different. They're supposed to be. Someone needs to tell the universities that. We are not commanded to like one another. We are not even commanded to trust one another. All right? But we are commanded to love one another. Were the disciples to whom Jesus made this commandment to, were they perfect? Well, You know, at one time, he rebuked them for having a mean spirit. Lord, should we call down fire from heaven because they didn't come to the altar after we got done preaching? (laughs) Let's just, we, we got the power. Lord, let's get them. They rejected you. Jesus said, you know not what spirit you're of. The Son of Man came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. I mean, they were messed up. And yet the Lord still loved them. Hey, they had a competitive spirit. Hey, which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Don't you know there had to be times when Jesus is just going, 
Father, they don't get it. They, you know, I, I've been trying to, to set a good example for them and they're just, just going over their head. I'm sure there were probably times in his humanity where he just wanted to kill them. It's like, hey, how about I rain down fire from heaven on you? <laughs> but no, he told them the truth and he loved them. Sometimes the disciples displayed unbelief. They just they didn't trust the Lord Jesus Christ. Hey, one time Peter <laughs> Peter thought he knew more about fishing than Jesus. <laughs> Jesus created the fish. And I think that's why Jesus said, cast your net on the other side. I'm going to show you how to fish. You know, and Peter's there getting the whole boat full and the boat's getting ready to sink. And don't you know that Jesus or Peter felt like such an idiot for basically kind of telling the Lord, leave the fishing to me. And yet the Lord still loved him. Hey, then there was Judas. Jesus knew who Judas was. He knew what Judas would do. Jesus did nothing about it. You know what? I know sometimes we have discernment and we have wisdom and we can, through our experience and our gut feeling, we can just know that, you know, brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, that they, hey, they're just a... They're just a snake in the grass, and they're not sincere, and I know what their motives are. You may or you may not be right. But even if you're right, it doesn't mean that you should act upon that knowledge or that discernment until they they haven't done anything yet. You may know beyond any shadow of a doubt that, hey, they're going to they're gonna bite you. They're going to hurt you. You may know it, but just like Jesus did with Judas, you still... Got to love them and distrust that, hey, if I obey the Lord, God's going to work it out somehow, some way. If you put yourself in self-protection mode and just try to keep from getting hurt all the time, you're never going to function like a disciple. We need to follow the Lord's example. John 13, verse 35, Jesus said, By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. I wonder if maybe what we're seeing, we're seeing a dearth, a famine of regeneration. Uh, You know, when I hear about people getting saved in a church nowadays, you know, hey, we had 10 people walk the aisle and get saved. I I have two things, two, two feelings that enter my mind. You know, the one, the first one, sadly, is, well, I wonder if that was real. Because a lot of evangelical, you know, outreach today is just emotional manipulation. I'm not interested in that. And I don't want to become a cynic. I don't want to be a fruit inspector. But I have to say, based on experience, that's the first thing that enters my mind. And then the second thing that enters my mind is, I'd sure like to see some of that here. Amen? But I wonder if maybe the reason, I mean, some people think maybe that God's left or the Holy Spirit's checked out. I think the the gospel is just as effective today as it's ever been. But maybe the world just looks at Christianity and they see that we're really no better than them. We got squabbles and 
lack of ethics and we don't love one another and maybe maybe the devil is working through that and there's no power in the gospel message because people don't see real Christianity and our love toward one another. It's a powerful evangelism tool when God's people just have a genuine, heartfelt love toward one another. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, Now we exhort you, brethren, warn them that are unruly, comfort the feeble-minded, support the weak, be patient toward all men. That's a practical truth right there. And when it comes to a love relationship within the body of Christ within the local church, it's important to remember, just like Romans 14, you've got those that are strong in the faith and you have those that are weak in the faith. You have those that have matured and grown and then you have baby Christians. And the Bible says here we're not supposed to criticize or look down upon the weak. We're supposed to support them. Hey, those that are feeble-minded, you get people, you know, we all have our moments of feeble-mindedness. If, if you don't, then God bless you. But, you know, feeble-minded means I'm just, I, I got a weakness here. And sometimes we go through battles of depression or anxiety or, or a fear of failure or sometimes we kick ourselves around the block and we've got a guilt trip that, and, and maybe the devil's joining in or maybe it's just human emotions. But it's not our place to look down upon those that are going through a hard time. It's our place to support the weak and to comfort the feeble-minded. You know, there's people that are going through a tough time that they don't need you to try to fix them. They don't need you to give them instruction. There's a lot of times that God's people already know what their problem is. They just need someone to support them and give them the strength so that they can deal with it. You know, bless God, you need to just be like David and face that giant like David did. Hey, maybe they just need you to encourage them. Amen? Maybe instead of criticizing them, say, hey, here, have one of these stones out of my bag. I'm here with you. So it's a Bible principle that we support the weak. We comfort the feeble-minded because you may be in the place to support and comfort today. You may need you may need a brother or sister to be in that place with you tomorrow. And I promise you, you probably will. If you think you got life and the Christian life all figured out, you're gonna you're gonna find out that your storm's coming, and your day's coming. We need to always remember that. And in doing that, the last part of that says, "Be patient toward all men." Hey, cut one another some slack. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Uh, let's not shoot our wounded. Let's try to nurse them back to hell so they can get back in the battle with us. And I've always said this, that, you know, people, pe- there, there aren't, there isn't a whole lot of bickering going on in a foxhole. You know that? I mean, you, 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 you got two soldiers in a foxhole and, I mean, the shells are going off and the bullets are flying. And can you imagine, you know, one soldier goes, hey, you know what? Your uniform's not quite right. You need, you need to adjust that. What are you, what are you doing in my foxhole? You're not clean shaven. Go get a shave. Can you imagine that? That'd just be so penny ante stuff and nitpicky. And so often we, we just get nitpicky when we need to just say, hey, hand me a clip here. 
Oh, how's you? You need, you need one of my clips? We're fighting the enemy. We lose sight of that so often, and I think churches all across this nation have lost sight of that. It is a tendency among Bible-believing Christians. When you know the truth, it's easy to get arrogant about knowing the truth and get condescending toward those that aren't just like us. I'm not talking about compromise here. I'm talking about supporting the weak and comforting the feeble-minded. And that brings us to the next item here, and that is forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32, we already read it, but we need to read it again. And be ye kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. But preacher, you don't understand what they've done to me. You don't understand how that they have hurt me and how they have betrayed me. You don't understand this injustice. Hey, maybe I do and maybe I don't, but Jesus does. Jesus understands all about it. When you go through more than Jesus has went through, then uh, you can come talk to me then and maybe I'll join you in your pity party. Maybe then I'll support you in your bitterness and say, yeah, you have a right to be bitter and to destroy your own life because of how somebody treated you. But I don't think anyone here today or ever will come to the point where Jesus was and how he was treated. And yet God says right here, for Christ's sake, we ought to forgive one another. Colossians 3.13 says, forbearing one another. Forbearing means to tolerate, to put up with. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. When Christians don't have a right relationship with one another, it is commonly evidence that a right relationship with Christ is lacking in one or the other or both. You know what? I want to say that again. When Christians don't have a right relationship with one another, it is commonly an evidence that a right relationship with Christ is lacking in one or the other or both. You see, Christ is the key for forgiving, both in quantity and severity of offenses. It doesn't matter how many times someone has hurt you or offended you, and it doesn't matter the quality of it, the severity of it, because Jesus set the example. And you may ask the question, well, what if they never repent? What if they never apologize for what they've done to me? Well, Luke 23, 34, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, if you analyze that statement on the cross, it's evident, listen, not everybody that was at the foot of the cross or was responsible for the crucifixion, I think there were probably at least a handful of them that are in heaven today. They saw what the Son of God was going through and they got under conviction, just like the thief on one side when he said, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. I think there's going to be some that were responsible for the crucifixion that God forgave. They got saved and born again. But everybody that was there when Jesus gave that blanket statement, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that didn't mean that they were all saved and on their way to heaven. There is, there is eternal 
forgiveness and there is temporal forgiveness. And so what Jesus is saying, Lord, don't hold this against them. Those that did not get saved, they ended up in hell, not because they crucified Jesus, but because they never dealt with their sins. You understand that? And so God had every right to cause them suffering and grief because of what they did to His Son. But Jesus said, Father, I don't want you to do that. They don't know what, they don't understand. They don't know what they're doing. And, and, and I think the application is really quite simple. When it comes to our relationships, we can forgive one another based on the fact that they probably don't know what they're doing. Now, closeness and trust may not be restored without a mutual reconciliation. But forgiveness is still attainable. Relationship is restored practically, but not necessarily emotionally. Listen, if somebody does something horrible to you, and they're not repentant, and they don't care whether you forgive them or not, you can forgive them. That relationship may not be restored to whole. In fact, it may never be restored to what it could have been. But you can still forgive and not hold that against them. And that hurt that they caused you does not have to ruin your day. You can just give it to the Lord and say, Lord, I just, I, I forgive them. And then from that point on, you may have a little, you may hurt at times, but you can shake their hand and you can smile and you can say, Hey, I love you. And you can pray for them and you can do the Christ-like thing. And that is what God would have us all to do. So love and forgiveness and then the next area is service. Galatians 5.13 says, For brethren, ye have been called unto liberty. Listen, you got freedom, folks. You're saved by the grace of God. You're not serving in the local church so that you can get to heaven. You're not doing it to, to, to prove anything to God or yourself or one another. That's not we have liberty. You, you can get saved and born again and you can never do anything in the church and still go to heaven. But the Lord says, don't use this liberty for an occasion to the flesh. Don't use that liberty to live selfishly, but rather, He says, by love, serve one another. That's what we're supposed to do. By love, we're supposed to serve one another. That's not just the job of the pastor or someone in position of leadership. Listen, if you're part of the body of Christ, you ought to be actively involved in loving and serving one another rather than living selfishly. Can you ask yourself that question? What am I doing to serve my brothers and sisters here in my church? This is my church family. And you know what the devil tries to do? The devil tries to get you ostracized from your church family. He wants to get you out of church so that you're not present here. And if he can, he'll have you to where you still attend church, but your heart's not really in it. You're not by love serving one another. And when that happens, listen, you are not, you are not glorifying the Lord the way that he wants you to glorify him. You need to be here in person, but you also need to be here in heart. 
and by love. Listen, the church is not here to meet your needs. We are all here to meet one another's needs. You know, it amazes me when people who are doing the least have complaints or suggestions about what we ought to be doing and how we should do it. You ever notice that? Usually the people that are in the battle complain the least because they're already over. You preacher, why don't we have this and why don't we do this? They see the need. They're really good at seeing the need and they want to say, why don't you do that? Or why don't you have somebody else do it? Hey, listen, the people that are by love serving one another are overladen already. They're about buried and you're coming in and complaining because your need's not being met. I would respect it if somebody said, hey, I see this need, preacher. What can I do? What can I do to help meet this need? And by love, serve one another. And that brings us to the last point here. And that is, I want to talk for just a moment or two. I got about five minutes left, if you'll be patient with me. And I want to talk about conversational ethics and humility. And like I said, this is not an exhaustive study on how we all get along and serve together, but these are some things that I think are right at the top list of priorities. James chapter 4, verse number 11 says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judgeth his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. But if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge." Now, I don't know about you, but that is a convicting passage of Scripture. If you really analyze what the Lord is telling us, that you're, you're basically saying when we start judging and criticizing and putting down one another, we're putting ourselves like we're, we're bigger and holier and better than God Himself, the lawgiver. The law is perfect and holy. And it is so human nature to put other people down and to find something, I mean... You know, you you come across something in the rumor mill and some gossip. It's like, oh, that's what they did. And boy, we jump on board. Have you ever noticed how bad news travels so fast? But if something good happened, it's just like people just shut their mouths and don't say a word about it. Folks, it ain't right when that happens. It's not right in Christianity. It's certainly not right in the church. Turn over to Titus chapter number 3. Titus chapter number 3. And we see here in verse 1 through 4, it says, "...to put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work." Now, I, I realize that usually in Christian churches today, we don't really have the big problem with the mayor or the county uh, commissioners or the government, but, you know, this magistrates and principalities, I'll tell you what, the church today has a big problem with because it's a big problem in our culture. It's rules. Standards. Rules. Listen, what group of people, what organization can function without having some rules? Listen, you don't want to fly. Do you want to fly across the country and the airline that you're flying doesn't have any rules or standards? 
Listen, do you want to get, do you want to have somebody walk onto a plane and look in the cockpit and see the pilot in there and he, you know, looks like a surfer? No, you want some professionalism. You want some rules because they're important. And listen, rules, listen, rules are not the most important thing in church or in any organization, but you've got to establish something to say, hey, this is a standard. People don't like rules today. And the people who enforce the rules are the people who are like the least. I'm enjoying this quiet. And I hope that you're thinking... I hope that if you're one of those that doesn't really respect and appreciate rules and those who enforce the rules. I'm not saying that all rules are perfect. I've never felt like any rule that I've had anything to do with was perfect. But sometimes you got to look and say, let's do the best that we can. Wouldn't you all agree that the, the Bible standards and rules in the modern church today that you, you take the disciples or Christians, your grandparents' church, that they showed up time travel and showed up in almost any church today, they'd look around and they'd, I mean, they'd have a heart attack and go back to the grave. It's like, well, I can't believe. They dress like that in, church, in the house of God? I can't believe that. The preacher's wife dresses like that? I can't believe it. And I know what you're thinking, preacher, you're just being a Pharisee and it's all about... No, I'm talking about rules and standards and saying, hey, we want a church here that reflects Jesus Christ, not the world out there. It's just sad. And the drift, just it just goes further and further and further. And when we drift in one area, it just makes it easier for the devil to present another. And listen, I think if anything, in this day and age, we ought to be tightening the screws, not loosening them. Listen, we want to talk about our hurts and injustices and fears, and we feel better about ourselves when we put others down. You ever noticed, you ever thought about that? Why, why, do I, why did I want to talk about that? I'll tell you why, because it makes you feel better. It makes you feel like that you're better than what you are if you can just put everybody down just a little bit. Why is it when somebody that we felt was our superior or even with us, when we hear something bad about them, we almost down in our heart, we just kind of almost rejoice. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think that they were as good as I thought they were. Yeah, I knew it. You know what that is? That is sinful human ego. It's not the Holy Ghost of God, I can tell you that right now. James teaches us that the tongue is set on fire of hell. It can, it can be bridled or controlled, but it cannot ever be tamed. Listen, today's tongues are so long. This is pretty profound. You ready for it? Today's tongues are so long that they extend down to our fingertips and our thumbs. Listen, the means of communication have never been greater today 
through technology and social media, and that has opened up an avenue for more problems and more hurts. The tongue is set on fire of hell. Listen, we need to put that bridle on it. We need to make sure that we understand it's never going to be totally tamed. It's going to have a tendency to want to gossip and backbite. It's going to have a tendency to say things that it ought not say. We better keep a bridle on it. We better be ethical. Philippians 2 verse number 3 says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. This is a Christ-like principle that cannot be accomplished without a Christ-like spirituality in our life. We're not supposed to be competing to be better than others. Listen, you boys and girls that are competing in regionals, this is for the process, what it's going to instill in you to compete. But we shouldn't want... Listen, if somebody gets picked and you don't, you ought to be rejoicing that they got picked. I'm not... This is no pat on my back, but if you go golfing with me, I'm telling you what, if you beat me at golf and you do better than me, I am thrilled. I, I'm not, and I'm not t- talking about soccer mom stuff where we don't keep score. I don't mean that. I'm talking about the fact that, hey, I want to go out and I want to do my best I'm competing against me, and if you beat me, then I should rejoice that, hey, you feel good about it. I'm not going to feel like that I lost. This this whole competition and sports mentality that has just saturated our culture, it's saturated the church, and it's become this competitive spirit. It's not Christ-like, and it's not healthy. We should do all that we do for the glory of God. Listen, whatsoever you set your hand to do, do it with your might. Do it with your best. But not so that you can feel like that you're better than anyone else. No, rejoice. I did my best and I lost. Somebody else was better than me. Well, welcome to life. In conclusion, and I am done. Relationships in the church are not techniques to master. They are principles to obey. They are contrary to our nature and can only be followed with the help of the Holy Spirit of God. Second Thessalonians 3, verse number 1, Paul said, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may have free course and be glorified even as it is with you. That's what we're looking for, is that we have a church, that the Word of the Lord can have free course. It's working in us. It's working through us. And we are putting into practice those principles. And we're, uh, we have that one accord, and we're trying to get people saved. And we're seeing the big picture and not all the little pictures. We're majoring on the majors and not majoring on the minors. And we're, we're, we're doing some self-analysis and making sure that we're judging ourselves and not one another. And so I say this, let us continue, and I mean that, continue 
to love, support, understand, and cooperate with one another.